Take your Bible and turn with me once more to Matthew chapter 25. And we'll once again consider a parable that Jesus told, known as the parable of the talents. And we are in this stewardship emphasis throughout the month of October. And the lesson of the parable of the talents is really impossible to miss. It's a parable that tells us what we're to do while we wait for Jesus to return. And this parable is located really in an extended portion of teaching from Jesus that emphasizes his coming and the reality of man's accountability. And, and really this, this section known as the Olivet Discourse, it begins in chapter 24 with a question that the disciples ask the Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so he mentions several signs that will accompany his return. He describes the birth pains that would lead up to it. And then at least five times in chapter 24 and in chapter 25, Jesus says this, no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, he did not give those details to his disciples. And the reason is that he wants us to live with a sense of anticipation of his coming so that there's constant readiness on our part. And so the thing that Jesus really wants to reinforce in the minds of his disciples is this important truth, we must be prepared. We must be ready for his coming. And so in chapter 25, he calls for readiness. And he does this really through the use of three parables. There's the parable of the virgins, uh, there in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 25. The parable of the talents that we'll read here in just a moment from verse 14 through verse 30. Then the parable of the sheep and the goats from verse 31 through 46. And really they all drive home the same point. Uh, and, and the point is this, be ready. And sort of the link that sort of links at least the first two parables together is verse 13, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know when Jesus is coming back and so you would better be ready. And then in verse 14, the parable of the talents begins in this way, for it will be like a man who's going on a journey. And the it there is referring to that kingdom theme, the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus has been teaching on uh, earlier there in the chapter. So these parables really give us sort of a snapshot, an illustration of what it means to be ready and faithful as we await the return of Jesus Christ. So if the emphasis of the parable of the ten virgins is on waiting and preparation, the emphasis of this parable of the talents is on productivity. We're not to be passive while we wait for the coming of our Lord. No, he has given us a measure of resources, ultimately that belong to him, and he wants us to put those to use for his kingdom's sake. And so that's really the emphasis of, of this passage of scripture. So if you're there, Matthew chapter 25, let's begin reading with verse number 14. The Bible says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. And here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we consider this parable at least one more time. Last week I mentioned the foundation of stewardship. This morning I want to emphasize the demonstration of stewardship. And so I want to speak from that subject, uh, the demonstration of stewardship. While we're waiting... And, and, and specifically waiting for the Lord to return, we're to take what he has entrusted us with and we're to put it to good use for his sake. And the main theme in this parable is that we need to cash in on our God-given opportunities. And so this is a story that really illustrates the importance of stewardship. Now, I realize that may be a new word for some folks, uh, what is it that we mean exactly when we refer to stewardship? What does that term refer to? Well, whenever it's used in the New Testament, and it's used at least nine times that way, but it translates a Greek word, oikonomia, uh, which is made up of two words, uh, house and law. Uh, we get the word economy from this same word. And so stewardship is simply an economy. It's an administration of resources which ultimately belong to someone else. And so stewardship is the management of household affairs. A steward, therefore, is someone who administers or manages another person's property. And so the point that's made in Scripture about stewardship is that all of us ultimately are the stewards of what God himself has given to us. And so the Christian life then operates by the principle not of ownership, but of stewardship. 
All that we have ultimately in our possession belongs to God. He's given it to us. He intends for us to manage it according to his will, with his interest in mind. And ultimately, one day, we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to be held accountable. In fact, this was something that absolutely gripped the heart of Jonathan Edwards. I personally believe that Jonathan Edwards was perhaps the greatest thinker and theologian that that America's ever produced. Uh, His ministry in Northampton, Massachusetts really became the catalyst for the first great awakening uh, in, in this nation. 1722, Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old, and he wrote what are known as 70 resolutions or guidelines uh, to help him really live a holy life. And in his preface to those resolutions, he acknowledged his need for God's grace in keeping those resolutions. But it's said that Jonathan Edwards would refer to those resolutions and review them at least once a week, every week in his life. And his first resolution sort of summed up his overall purpose. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good and most for the good and advantage of mankind. (laughs) In other words, he's saying, "I'm, I'm determined that I'm going to live my life for the glory of God, for my own good as God has defined that, and then ultimately for the good of mankind. Well, other resolutions had to do with speaking the truth, uh, demonstrating self-control, regular study of God's Word. But what I found really remarkable were several resolutions whenever he would think about his own death. Now, you think about this, a 19-year-old thinking this way, that whenever he would think of his death, he was resolved to live in such a way so that there would be no regrets on that day. He's resolved to live his life in such a way that there will be no regrets when I come to the day of my death. That's how a faithful steward lives his or her life. No regrets. And so so if if you want to understand what that involves, then pay close attention to the message of this parable of the talents. Now, we've already looked at one truth from this passage of Scripture, and I tried to really make this point last week. But number one... The first thing we notice from this parable is this truth that stewards are entrusted with their master's property. As a steward, I've simply been entrusted with that which ultimately belongs to God himself. So in this story, the man who goes on a journey, he distributes talents to his three servants. Now, what are the talents that are being referred to here? When we hear that word talents in English, we automatically associate that with natural abilities like playing an instrument or being athletic or that kind of thing. But in the first century world, a talent was a sum of money, and it was a really large sum of money. Uh, If it was gold, it was extremely valuable. If it was silver, it was still valuable, but not as valuable as gold. But a talent weighed somewhere around 75 pounds. And so this would have been approximately 20 years' worth of an average worker's salary represented by one talent. And that means that this master is entrusting his servants with a certain amount of his wealth, and the amount is very significant. And you'll notice that each servant receives a significant amount of financial responsibility. And you need to pay attention to the fact that not every servant receives the same amount. The amount of wealth is not evenly distributed, but it's distributed perhaps on the basis of potential 
the very least we could say, it's the master's sovereign choice to distribute the talent as he so chooses. The first servant receives five talents. The second servant receives two talents. The third servant is given only one talent. And verse 15 says that each one was given according to his ability. And again, this is the master who's making that determination. And he's doing that because he's the master. If you own a vast estate and you wanted to give your wealth away, you could do it however you wanted without any explanation because you're the owner. And so as the man who owns it all, he's sovereign over his estate. He can do with it as he wills. And so here he distributes it among, among these three servants. Now, you know, stewardship involves a lot more than just money. I know that that's our emphasis when we think of stewardship. But beyond that, even though money is a major part, stewardship involves the careful administration of three major areas. And again, we looked at these last week. Number one, we all have a certain amount of time that's been allotted to us. Uh, There are 24 hours in a day. There's no one who gets 25 Uh, We all have the same 24 hours per day, and yet, how true it is, we don't all have the same number of days. There's no one who knows the length of time that God has given them to live on this earth. And so we make assumptions, but there are no guarantees. Some folks live well into their 90s, while others seem to come to the end of their days in the flower of youth, and often we're scratching our heads and wondering why that is. Well, folks, we simply have to trust the master who's allotted to each one of us a measure of time, and that time is different. The fact of the matter is none of us are promised tomorrow. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, make me know what is the measure of my days. Make me know how fleeting my life really is. James in the New Testament says that our life is really a vapor. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. And so life is so very fleeting. Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days. And so the stewardship of time is numbering your days, making each day count to the glory of God. So each of us, uh, to each of us, is a certain amount of time that's been allotted. And then secondly, The second major category of stewardship involves the talents that have been supplied to us. And again, by using the word here, I am referring to abilities or skills, the normal use of the term. Each of us have a unique personality, and God has gifted us to be able to serve uh, the body of Christ, uh, to serve his kingdom, to be on mission for uh, his, his kingdom's sake. And so our job then is to steward each of these talents that the master has entrusted to us, the measure of ability, skills that we have. We're to put it to use for his sake. There are different ways in which we serve in the body of Christ, but folks, all of us can serve in some way. And all of us ought to put to use the talents that we've been given, the spiritual gifts that we've been given. We should put it to use for Christ's sake for the glory of God and for the building up of the body of Christ. So we all have time. We've all been entrusted with a certain measure of talents. And then third, we all have an accumulation of treasures that have been given to us. Financial resources, uh, wealth, income, 
houses, property, assets. And so what we do with these tangible possessions really has eternal implications. And stewardship of our treasures mean that we, we use our resources in the interest of our master. And that is the major theme of this parable here in Matthew 25. God has a design for all that he's allowed you to obtain in this life. And that purpose is to serve him, to advance his kingdom cause, uh, to meet needs in the lives of others. And so I'm to bring all of this underneath the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what stewardship is. And so stewardship is not just a part of our discipleship. In many ways, stewardship is the essence of discipleship. It is the faithfully using and putting to use of all that has been entrusted to me, the opportunities that I've been given. Uh, you think about the stewardship of the gospel. You know, our church has a stewardship, don't we? We've been entrusted with a ministry here. It's not by accident that our church is where it is, but it's by divine design. And God intends for us to be faithful stewards with the gospel, with our resources, with our opportunities, and we're to make the most of it for Christ's sake. Not be passive, but to be diligent and work while we wait for Christ to come. So, again, the master is entrusting his property to his servants. And again, there's not the same amount that's been distributed, but all have the same opportunity to do something with what they've been given. And so that's the bigger, the bigger issue. You say, well, I've not been given as much as he has or she has. Well, that's not the point. The issue is not what you have or how much of it you have. The issue is what are you doing with what you have? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. God's the owner. We're the managers. Stewardship is the faithful managing of these resources that we've been entrusted with, and we do it according to the owner's will with his intention in mind. And so listen, there's a warning here against laziness and passivity because really this is a call to action in my life and in your life, really to risk all that we have for Christ and for his kingdom's sake. And so to see what this involves, I want you to notice the second truth from this parable, and it's this. Stewards are expected to do something with the property that they've been given. We've all been entrusted with the master's property, but we're expected to do something with that property. And so if you look at verse 16, notice the Bible says, he who had received the five talents from his master, he went at once and traded with them. He didn't let any moss grow under his feet. I mean, he got to work for his master, and he got to work quick. He seized the opportunity. He made five talents more. Same thing said about the guy in verse 17. So also he who had the two talents, he made two talents more. He wasn't given as much as the guy who received five talents, but he still went to work with it. He still put it to use for his master's sake. And then verse 18, one who had received the one talent, he went and he dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. So where you have two servants who really went to work in the interest of their master, this third servant, he, he decides he's going to go play in the dirt. And he chooses that, you know, it's a better use of his time to go play in the dirt, hide the master's money, than really do something with it. 
And we'll talk about him in just a moment. But, but the point that I want you to notice is that these servants are expected to do something with the property that they've been entrusted with. God expects us to be productive with those things that he's given to us for his kingdom's sake. And so this first servant who has five talents, he goes and he trades. That word means to be engaged in business. It's the opposite of inactivity or idleness. Now, we're not told exactly what he did with those five talents. Maybe he went out and purchased land on behalf of his master. Maybe he went and bought some seed, which then became a crop. Maybe he traded with it and and he doubled his investment. The point that's being made here is that he seized the opportunity to do something profitable with what his master had entrusted to him. He made the most of his opportunities. And the same thing said in verse 17 about the servant who's given two talents. He's industrious. He's just as faithful. And so servant number two really is a prime example that it doesn't matter how much we have. Again, it's what we do with what we have. That's what really matters. None of us could ever say that we don't have enough to serve God. None of us can never say that we're not talented enough We don't have enough resources because it doesn't really matter what you have. The issue is, are you putting it to use for the master's sake? Some have five talents, some have two, some have one. What am I doing with it? That's what matters. Have I seized the opportunity to make good on the master's initial investment in my life? So these first two servants, they they go all in. But the third guy, he, he is very reserved. Out of fear, out of being interested in really his own life and his own interest, he goes and he buries the talent in the ground. And so he wastes his opportunity. If the first two guys seize their opportunities, this third servant wastes his opportunity. The first two servants, even though they're given different amounts, they both come back with a 100% yield on their investment. What's interesting to me is the one who is given the least does the least with it. Isn't that kind of ironic? Here's the guy who didn't have as much responsibility as the other two. He didn't have five talents, didn't even have two. He had one. And the one who's given the least does the least with it. And so he's a prime example of you have no excuse when it comes to to not serving God because all of us have been entrusted with our lives, our resources, our relationships, different gifts, and God expects us to put it to use for his sake. So he goes out and he digs a hole and he buries the talent, and with buried talent, there's no chance of making any return. He makes no investment and he risks no loss. So we would say he's, he's neutral. Oftentimes, we don't risk anything, I think, because we fear of failure, making a mistake. What if we try and we don't succeed at something? You know, what will people think if I fail miserably at this, this opportunity that I have? You know, what will the critics say? What will happen to our reputation? Came across a quote by Teddy Roosevelt about critics. Listen to this. It's not the critic who counts. 
It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming who does actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback and stand and critique and criticize those who are on the front lines serving and putting their talents to use. But it's another thing to go all in. Listen, some of you perhaps have allowed fear to, to, to rob you of joy that God wants you to, to know and possess Joy that only comes through obedience. Joy that comes through serving. Joy that comes through giving. Joy that comes through rolling up your sleeves and getting to work and diving in. And yet sometimes we fear, well, what if I fail? What if someone else? Listen, it doesn't matter what other people think. We can allow the fear of man, which the Bible says is a snare, to keep us in that gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And so this third servant, he's a guy who's choosing to live out his life in that gray twilight. He had the same opportunity as the other two servants, but instead of seizing the opportunity, he squanders it. He takes what his master gave him and he buries it in the ground while ultimately he goes on living for himself, which tells me that his number one concern was not for his master, but for himself. And so he's an illustration of those who live with just this earthbound perspective. They take the stuff of life and they bury it in this world rather than investing it in the next. Wow. So there's a lot to learn here. God expects us to do something with that which he's entrusted us with. Now, there's a third lesson that I want you to see, and it's this. Notice how the stewards ultimately are evaluated at the master's return. Stewards have been entrusted with the master's property. The stewards are expected to do something with that property. And then those stewards are ultimately evaluated when the master returns. Verse 19 begins in this way. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with his servants. He's gone a long time. And the implication is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, his coming is going to be delayed. These are some veiled ways that Jesus is really telling his disciples that, that he's not going to set up his kingdom just as soon as they think it is. <laughs> Remember just after the resurrection, his disciples were asking the question, now, now, is this the time you're going to, you know, restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. All that's the Father's business. He says, but I've got business that I want you to be engaged with. I'm going away, <laughs> but here's business for you. I want you to make disciples. 
I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ultimately the ends of the earth. Don't just be passive. Don't be stargazers, but get to work. Make disciples. So that's really the the, the thrust of this, this parable here. The day is coming, however, when the Lord returns and he's coming back to evaluate. And so that word settled accounts, this was a commercial term in the first century which meant to inspect the books. So the idea is at the master's return, there's this formal audit that's conducted to see how they've done in terms of their stewardship. And this question of what they had done with their opportunity, that's what's going to be evaluated when the master returns. What had they done with their master's resources? Were his interests ultimately advanced by their faithfulness? Or had there been a stagnation? Had there been an attrition of his assets? So notice here that faithfulness is going to be rewarded when the master returns. Here in the parable, the first servant, he displays the results of his work. The one who's given five talents, he went and traded, and he had five more talents to present to his master. And so he's praised. He's rewarded with greater responsibility. He's able to enter into the joy of his master. And the same thing said of the second servant, even though he didn't have quite as much responsibility. But again, the, the point is not the amount, but it's what they do with what they've been given. And so both of these servants are faithful. Both of these servants are rewarded. And those who've been good and faithful stewards of their time, their abilities, their material resources that God has given, they can expect his smile when they stand before him. You know, Paul said that all of us have an appointment to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to give an account to receive what's due for what we've done in the body, whether it be good, whether it be evil. First Corinthians chapter three, he says that we're all building on this foundation and it's either solid, we're building with valuable, precious resources or it's wood, hay and stubble and and yet at the day of evaluation, it's going to be made clear what we did with what we had. And so this fact that I'm going to stand before the Lord and be accountable for my stewardship, this is one of life's most sobering thoughts. So faithfulness then is rewarded. And then notice how idleness will be rebuked. The first two servants are faithful with what they had been entrusted. They receive the master's commendation when he returns. But as for this third servant, the master has some very harsh words of criticism. This guy has some excuses, though, that he has to offer. You know, by his own admission, he says, I I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. I was afraid. I was gripped by fear and lived with paralysis. So I, I just went and buried in the ground what you gave me. And so here you have what is yours. And he makes this claim that he knew the master to be a hard man a difficult man who reaped where he didn't sow, who gathered where he didn't scatter any seed. And so rather than risking anything, he goes and plays in the dirt with the master's money. And yet the master calls him out on the carpet and says, do you really believe that I'm a hard man? He asks the question. 
And the idea is, if you really believe that, he says, the very least you could have done is taken the talent that I gave you and put it in the bank so I would have at least had some interest with it when I get back. So the idea is the man really didn't even believe his own excuse. You know what the guy's problem is? He thought he knew his master, but he really didn't. That's the issue. And so because he didn't know him, he didn't trust him. And because he didn't trust him, he did nothing. And because he did nothing, what he had was taken away from him. And then notice, the worthless servant is cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and where there is gnashing of teeth. And folks, wherever you find that language used in the New Testament, it's always descriptive of hell. It's always descriptive of judgment. So that tells me that there's more than meets the eye here with this particular parable that Jesus is telling. In fact, this is a parable about the kingdom. If you look at all three parables in Matthew chapter 25, you'll notice that there are, in the first parable, there are foolish virgins who are kept out of the wedding banquet. You've got a worthless servant who's cast into the outer darkness. The last parable, you've got sheep and goats. The sheep separated from the goats. And so the point is, Jesus is dealing with those superficial attachments to his kingdom in the visible expression of his kingdom. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now think about that for just a second. James in the New Testament says that faith without works is dead and it's useless. We're not, we're not saved by our works. But make no mistake about it, if we possess genuine saving faith, then there will be a pattern of obedience, not perfect obedience in my life because I still come up short and I still must depend daily upon the grace of God. But there will be fruit that's produced in the life of a genuine servant of Christ. And so in a very real way, this third servant could represent those who have had gospel opportunities. They've received their very life and their very breath from God. It belongs to him, and one day when he takes back that which he gives and they're held accountable, had they committed their life to Christ? Had they come to faith in Christ? Had they believed the gospel? And if not, then they're going to be separated from him for all of eternity. And so, folks, I don't want to, I don't want to miss this emphasis here in this, this parable. Works and stewardship and obedience is very much a part of the Christian life. Again, we're not saved by that. We're not justified by that. But if we are justified by God's grace, then there will be this pattern of obedience in our life. And it'll show up in how we give. It'll show up in how we serve. It'll show up in our attitudes. It'll show up in our relationships. It'll show up in the priorities that we live for. If my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if the spirit of the living God has come to take up residence in my heart and life as a believer, then listen, he's going to be working his way out. 
the one who began a good work in me, he's going to see it through to completion until the day that I stand before Christ. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. And yet, verse 10 in that same chapter says that there are some good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. And that's what stewardship recognizes. That's really the lesson, that, that's what stands out to me from this passage of Scripture. All three servants are judged by how well they manage someone else's resources. And yet this third servant thought he knew his master, but he didn't. And so I just leave you with this question. Do you know the master? Do you know him? Do you trust him? And if so, how is that trust practically being demonstrated in your life through the demonstration of stewardship? How does my faith in Jesus Christ determine the way that I use my wealth? How does my faith in Jesus Christ determine the way that I use my time? How does my faith in Jesus Christ impact the way that I use my bag of talents? Let's stand for prayer this morning. I don't know about you, but I so long to hear my master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you long to hear that when you stand before Jesus? You know, maybe we need to resolve like Jonathan Edwards that we're going to live in such a way that when we come to the time of our death that we can say, no regrets. No regrets. You say, Pastor, you know, I sure have dropped the ball in my life. I've, I've failed a lot. I've wasted a lot of time, wasted a lot of resources. There have been seasons in my life I've really let my priorities get out of whack. I'm embarrassed, even ashamed. What can I do? I'll tell you exactly what you can do, my friend. You can cast yourself upon the mercy and grace of God who's gracious who's forgiving and who can even make the latter years of our life far more productive than the first years there's a phrase in the Old Testament that talks about our God he, he can restore the years that the locust has taken think about years that we've squandered through living for myself Lord, help me cash in on the time and the opportunity that I have while I have it. And thank you for grace. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, how will you steward the gospel? Will you believe the message and turn from your sin and believe that Christ died for you and that he rose again from the dead? Confess him as Lord. Believe the gospel and be saved while you have opportunity. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word this morning. You have entrusted us with so many resources, whether it be time, talents, treasures. And God, may we be faithful. To whom much is given, much will be required. And I think about all that we've been entrusted with. God, may we put it to use for your sake. For the kingdom's sake, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.